first reading is from Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending uh, calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The second reading is from Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, come home you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Really one of the most um, <laughs> well-known of Jesus' parables, one of the most beloved and one of the most defining. Uh, really, are there many people in, in, a, in Western culture that do not know this story? <laughs> uh, quite remarkable. I wake up in a morning like this with this text in front of me all day, and it's one of those texts where I think, don't ruin it. That's it. Just don't ruin it. Let's see what happens. Shall I pray? Father, bring us all home tonight. For those of us who are far away, maybe the long journey home ends tonight. But for some of us who are right next door, just a few steps to take, perhaps there's always been a few steps to take, but perhaps we're too stubborn to admit our need, too stubborn to receive grace. I pray that you draw us inside, uh, into your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, a new thing to note about God's grace was this, while grace transforms some, it infuriates others, it drives them mad, and for understandable reasons, we'll see. We're going to explore the parable of the prodigal son, the runaway, and we'll be focusing on the older brother, asking the question, I, am I the older brother? And how would I know if I were the older brother? And what would I do if I found out that I was the older brother? What I want you to do is sit forward, lean in, because this story of Jesus could transform your life. John Newton wrote, Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's what happened to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. That was true for a former slave trader, John Newton. It's also true for this sinner right here. Grace has led me home. But ultimately, well, very much true for the prodigal in the story that Jesus told. Prodigal means wasteful. That's what the younger brother does to his father's inheritance. He decimates it. In a far-off country, in the worst possible ways, the narrator says of him, verse 13, there he squandered his wealth in wild living. The older brother speaks truthfully about him in verse 30. 
that he has squandered your property with prostitutes. Squandered. Now, there's a word that we ought to use more often. What happened to that younger boy? We know a few things in the story. I mean, it's a story, but we know that, verse 17, we know that when he came to his senses, something happened. We know that sitting there in the pigsty of his own choices, he says to himself, verse 18, I will arise and I'll go back to my father. And I'm hoping that tonight some people, if I can use the words of Jesus, some people say, come to their senses and they too say, I will arise and go back to my father. We know that he said those words thinking of his home and his father whom he'd hurt so badly. We know that he came home with a prepared speech, a speech in the back pocket. It goes like this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That'll do. We also know that as he neared home, his father saw him from a distance and runs towards him. Not common for a man of dignity in that age. The father doesn't even listen to the prepared speech. He simply throws his arms around his prodigal son, and kissed him. Now remember, you've got to remember this, throughout this whole story, there's an older brother working the fields. Slaving is the word he'll use. And yet the party that was thrown that night was for the younger brother, the squanderer. We're told, the father said, quick, you know, before you do anything else, bring the best robe and put it on him, verse 22, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, he needs it. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has been resurrected. He's alive again. He was lost and is found, and so they began to celebrate. Grace led him home. And grace may lead you home tonight. You see, there are three stories in chapter 15. In the first one, in verses 3 through 7, the shepherd looks for the one lost sheep out of 99. When he finds that sheep, he throws a party, and Jesus offers this reflection in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way as the shepherd throwing the party for the one lost sheep, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Are you that one sheep? And is the good shepherd searching for you tonight? In the second story, this woman loses one very valuable coin. She searches the home, she lights a lamp. When she finds the coin, she throws a party. Jesus offers this reflection, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You've heard this quote, St. Bernard of Claveau, the tears of the penitent form the wine of the angels. Are you that one lost sheep? Are you that one lost coin? Or are you the older brother? See, grace has led me so far, far. Grace will lead me home. We're going to sing that in a little while. But the opposite is also true. Grace 
leads some away from God. Grace leaves some people cold and angry and bitter. See Jonah there on the hillside. In Jonah 4 verse 1, to Jonah all of this seemed very wrong. Everything he just experienced seemed very wrong to him. Grace is meant to enlarge your heart and then transform your life, but for some it works in reverse. It makes their hearts smaller. The Pharisees come to mind. I love in the story how the older brother hears music and dances and he wonders what's going on. And I do wonder whether people sitting here in the church tonight hear about grace and they hear about grace all the time. They wonder what's going on. Why do you always talk about grace? Why is it so important? I think many of us think of grace as a sort of magic pill that softens all hard hearts. So, for example, we might think, if only she felt the love of God, she'd yield. If only he felt the love of God, he'd surrender. All people who feel the love of God yield, melts hearts. And I do believe that grace is meant to warm you to God. After all, you are divinely loved despite being you. But not everyone who meets the grace of God is won over. Some are hardened by the grace of God. They don't get it. It has what you might call a reverse effect. What do I mean? It's not a secret that I sleep poorly and have done for 30 years. I went to see a sleep specialist recently and she said to me, welcome to being 50. I said, I had this when I'm 20, so that doesn't help me. Anyway, from time to time, look, I'm, you know, I'm okay. But from time to time, I'll see a doctor and the doctor will prescribe some medicine to get me sleeping, like, for example, melatonin. But every time I try something like melatonin, the pill for me works in reverse. My body fights it. So I get more wound up when I take the pill, not less wound up. I take one pill, wife says, take two. I take two, she says, wound up, she says, take three. <laughs> for some, grace has the opposite effect on them, like me with melatonin, and I want to explore that with you tonight. Jesus pinpointed the people for whom grace worked in reverse. It's in 15 verse 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And he eats with them because they're all gathering around to hear Jesus. They can't believe uh, what Jesus is doing. This is all through Luke's gospel. They are the older brothers. They're the ones who refuse the invite to the party. As Jonathan Swift said, they have enough religion to make them hate. Why is that the case? And are we like them? And so my text today is three verses from Luke 15, from verse 28. The older brother became angry, bitter, and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. See what the older brother's doing? He's calling his father to account. You're being unjust. 
And so we have here a mutterer. So today, how to tell if you're an older brother and what would you do about it? And the outline's on page nine. How to tell if you're an older brother? Well, it's if you're deaf to the symphonies of God's choruses of God's grace, you're blind to one's moral superiority or dumb and unable to articulate a need to repent. And I say all that bearing in mind the challenges of the disabled, but also bearing in mind that these are the categories that Jesus himself chooses. Are you so blind? Because the seeing will become blind or you hear but you never hear. You can tell if you're an older brother if you are spiritually deaf, blind and dumb. First, I might find myself dumb to the symphonies and choruses of God's grace. They do not come alive in my heart. Look at verse 25. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Wondered what was going on when he hears an answer. Verse 28, the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. The older brother heard something. It's not that he's deaf. He heard music and dancing but he was deaf to the symphonies and choruses of grace. All he heard was the ruckus of licentiousness. I took great delight in writing those words. It's very satisfying. In the original language of the New Testament, the Greek word for music here is the word symphonias, where we get our word symphonies. And the word for dancing is koron, where we get our word chorus. When the older brother came near the house, verse 25, he heard symphonies and choruses, and yet he will not go in. Father had to come out. Now, why? Well, remember this is about the Pharisees who were muttering about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. You know, these tax collectors were people ruining society by collaborating with the Romans and skimming off the top. So they were crooks and so-called sinners were people ruining society, living a life for themselves, disobeying the commands of God and so thwarting the kingdom of God. The Pharisees had moral outrage at these two groups. I wonder if Jesus' revolution is so complete in Western society and in Australia that we find it hard to believe that people would act in such ways. I mean, the embrace of everyone has become so complete in our society. But perhaps not so. Perhaps we can access the moral outrage of the Pharisees via US politics, via American politics. Stay with me here. If anyone of you have ever thought or said so on social media, if any one of you have ever thought voting for Trump is evil, you vote, how could you weaken our world? Or if any one of you have ever thought voting for Biden is stupid, how could you weaken our world? Then you have, may have a sense of the experience of an older brother, this sense of moral outrage that People are ruining, ruining society by what they're doing. This sense of how could you? You know, if, if you've ever written the words, I can't even, on Facebook, you know what an older brother feels. The parable is Jesus' way of talking about God, what God values, or who God values, 
and why Jesus is spending his life with the spending his time with the lowlifes, the bad people. But lest you be lest Jesus be misunderstood, hear what Bishop Tom Wright says. He says, throughout the chapter, Jesus is not saying that sinners and tax collectors were simply to be accepted as they stand. This is not sort of moral neutrality that the West now calls for. Sinners, he writes, must repent. The lost sheep and the lost coin are found. The prodigal son comes to his senses and returns home. But Jesus, he writes, has a different idea to his critics about what repentance means. So the Pharisees said, you repented by coming to the temple, but that was the last place the Pharisees and the tax collectors thought they could be accepted. Jesus is saying, rather, repentance and forgiveness and grace could happen right here, right now. In this room tonight, Jesus is saying, at his table, gathered round him in his presence. And see, and so God celebrates when one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and he celebrates with symphonies and choruses, this is the wine of the angels. And so I urge you this evening to surrender to the joy of God. I'm going to pray such a prayer at the conclusion of our message. Why not come inside? We might be deaf, we might be blind or blinded by my moral superiority. You see, when the father hears that his eldest has not joined the party, he leaves the celebration. We're told he went out and pleaded with him, verse 28, but the older brother will have none of it. Verse 29, he answered his father, look, he points to himself, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. That's true. But then you realize it's about comparison. Yet you never gave me even one goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He has a case, right? I've been slaving, not one goat. I believe he has a solid case. Just like religious people have a good case with God, but he is blinded by his moral superiority. In the end, he is self-focused. He's thinking about himself, not about God. Justifying self, but only God justifies. It's all about him over another, over his brother. It's about his service, his slave, slaving, his work, his honour, his obedience, and therefore what he believed was owed to him by his father. That's not about love about entitlement. It is about justice, very much about justice. It's not about grace. The older brother cared less about the relationship he had with his father and more about the good things he was doing. And so if you've ever thought, as people almost always think, I'd be okay with God, if there's a God, I'd be okay with him in the end because I'm a decent person, then be very careful. Because if you label yourself a decent person, you are comparing yourself to others who aren't. I believe almost everything we do in our working life operates like the older brother wants it to operate. You work hard, you get rewarded. Your colleague slacks off, they get reprimanded, or, or they should be. 
that you, you might say is the way it's supposed to be. How can my company work properly? When it doesn't happen that way, you may mutter. Have you ever muttered about a colleague? Things are ruined by those who wreck the rules. I believe that much of what happens in social media, not all of it, just a, a good amount of it, is sort of signaling that we know what's right and others don't. You know, there's two words for it, virtue signaling. But here's the truth. You can be bad and yet be received by God. You can be good and rejected by God. That's a surprise. But Paul makes sense of it when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's in a both brothers is this, that neither loved the Father for who he was. They both loved the Father for the Father's stuff. The younger brother wants the stuff and squanders it. The older brother wants the stuff and works for it. But when that stuff is threatened, presumably the return of the younger son means that half of what's left will be halved again in the new inheritance. And so when his stuff is threatened, he goes ballistic. And this, of course, is that strange mystery of why a bad person and a good person can be equally alienated from God. It's one of the great motifs of literature. You know, the bad person is often the moral person. One swaps the father for his recklessness, the other swaps the father for his goodness. Of course, if only it were easy to point the finger at one or the other, if only those conservatives would just go away, if only those liberals who look down on us could just go away. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was put into a gulag by the Soviets and he came out and wrote a famous piece of work and he said, very famously, he said, if only it were simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. That's what the gulags were, by the way. They're the bad people, send them off, and the good people will remain. But, writes Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. Imagine writing that after a season in the gulags where you can point to the bad people. He says, the dividing line cuts through the heart of every human being. If you choose tonight to sit at Jesus' table, whether you're good or bad, a long journey home or just a few steps, if you accept his invitation, then you too can experience the symphonies and choruses of grace and be transformed over a lifetime sitting at the table with the Lord and learning from him. The father wants both boys in the house, but only the good one refused to take a few steps and come inside. The irony is that the one that had the longer journey found himself on the inside of the house. The one with the fewer steps remained on the outside. He is blinded by his moral superiority, but I love how the father is gracious to him too in verse 31 with an invitation 
He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to, I don't want you on the outside. I, I love you. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is resurrected. He was lost and is found. We had to celebrate. So come inside. Oh, good son. Experience the symphonies and choruses of, of grace. Discover the heart of God. Deaf, dumb, you might be bl uh, deaf, blind, you might be dumb and unable to articulate the need to repent. Well, guess what? Tonight, we're going to take bread and wine and I've got a confession for you that addresses God as Heavenly Father. I'd love to give you the words tonight to be able to articulate the need to repent. And then after articulating that need to take bread and wine and receive Christ by faith. These are the words the oldest son used when faced with the grace of God, confronted. He said, but when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. For him? Really? The one who destroyed half our estate? You're not giving this party for the one protecting the remaining half? You see his argument. The older brother is, you know, a crusader for justice. He's demanding justice, holding his father to account. By the way, demanding justice is a risky thing to do if you find yourself a sinner. Be careful. But you feel his heart. Um, I know a man in New York. I met him recently, uh, a couple of years ago. He's in his 60s. He said he went to church every week for decades and decades and decades and worked hard to be a good Christian, to pray, to turn up to church, to give. But he said it was in his 50s, hearing a sermon as boring as the one you're currently listening to, sitting in a pew as hard as the one you're currently sitting in. And he said he realized he wasn't the old, he kept trying to fit himself in the paradigm of the older brother and just going, but I'm not that bad. And then it dawns on him, there's another brother, and I'm him. He became a Christian in his 50s. But let us not be unaware of the difference between the two brothers. There is a difference, and we're kidding ourselves if we think otherwise. The older brother thinks, I've worked hard, he's visited prostitutes, but he gets a reward, and I don't even get a, a goat. And that's why the older brother says to his father, when, when this son of yours, he can hear the derogatory tone, you know, he's not my brother, like, not my president, you know, not my brother. <laughs> when this son of yours comes home, that tone is offset by the next verse where the father calls the younger brother, this brother of yours, think differently, think with grace, but remember the context, the Pharisees thought highly of themselves and looked down on everyone else, they couldn't even imagine that they were sinners, they didn't even have a language for it, they were dumb and unable to articulate a need to repent. Like Jonah in the Old Testament lesson today, I knew it. I knew that you were kind and gracious. That's why I went the other way. I said it early on. 
But like Jonah, as I said before, the story of the prodigal son is left hanging for the reader. Both stories. The reader says, is my heart little? Curmudgeon? Am I a mutterer? Do I have such a strong sense of myself? Both Jonah and the older brother had a very strong sense of themselves. But it did them no favours. We don't know what happened to the older brother in just the same way that we don't know what happened to Jonah. Jonah left on the hillside angry. The brother left on the outside bitter. So are we the older brother? What could we do about it? And the answer is come forward tonight and pray a prayer with us. And that prayer is the prayer of repentance, you'll see on page 11. And to get you ready for that prayer of repentance, we're going to sing the song Amazing Grace. And when we take bread and wine in a few moments' time, we're going to pray a prayer of repentance. But there's an old prayer in the prayer book that goes like this. We do not presume to come to this thy table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. Amen? We don't presume on the grace of God, but we come anyway. The symphonies and choruses of grace are magnificent, and the composer even more glorious. Thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. For there are two ways home, a long way and a short way, but both in some ways are hard, because they both require a swallowing of pride. Some of us need to journey from a far-off country. Others of us need to just walk inside. Some of us have miles and miles, and maybe the journey ends tonight. Some of us have just two steps. Both are hard because grace is, by its nature, confronting. But here we are in church, and so the chances of us being an older brother are very high. When I share my testimony, I share it in the language of invitation. I was raised in a family that believed in God, and I went to church every week. I was a twicer even when I was a teenager. Who's a twicer when they're a teenager? But I spent most of the time thinking I was responsible and being a good Christian. I'd think I wasn't living up to a standard, but I just kept trying. It was like I was on God's front lawn, inside the gate, but not, inside the, not having walked through the front door. And I think I spent about 20 years inside on the, on the lawn. When I was about, I don't know, late teens, I realized that God's grace was the only tune to sing. And it was at that point that I entered the front door. I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I found out how good God is and was and always will be. And I celebrated with tears. Easter's coming up. And Easter tells you this, that God in Christ is running out to meet us if we are a younger brother a long way from home. God is running out to meet us and to throw us a party by repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the story says. But it also tells us that God leaves the celebration of the unworthy to urge us religious types to take just a few steps to come inside so that both of us, the sinner and the saint, can trust in God's grace alone. But some of us will remain infuriated, those of us with a strong sense of self, and a clear clarity about who is wrong and ruining our world. 
grace to sinners, grace to my enemies, my political ones, those who don't see eye to eye with me. You're saying that all my hard work is not enough? No, it's not. Never was. You're on the wrong track. Maybe the track is Robert Robertson who penned this song that we'll sing in the next couple of weeks. Come, thou fount of every blessing. It's referring to God. Come, O God, and tune my heart to sing thy grace. Tune it. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Let me pray. As the band come forward, let me pray. Father, we uh, choose Jesus Christ for those of us who are a long way off, like John Newton, the slave trader. We choose you tonight, and we might say with, with John Newton uh, that grace is amazing. <laughs> the, sound, the sound of self is sweet, the kind of grace that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind but now I see but some of us father have just got just five or six steps to take and maybe those steps will be taken tonight as we take bread and wine and remember Christ's saving death on the cross father I choose you how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed Maybe this is that hour. We choose you. We choose Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.